Welcome to Amona Moment, a podcast hosted by the Museum of Northwest Art in Laconner, Washington. The Museum of Northwest Art connects people with the art, diverse cultures, and environments of the Northwest. It also enriches lives in our diverse community by fostering essential conversations and encouraging creativity through exhibitions and educational activities that explore the art of the Northwest. On February 23rd, Mona hosted a dancer panel with professional dancers and local dance experts, including Alethea Alexander and Victoria Watts. They both spoke about the influence of George Balanchine on the dance world and his Western Symphony. I hope you enjoy this Mona moment. So welcome to Mona, and thank you for coming tonight to the dancer panel. I'd like to introduce our two panelists on the right. I guess your left, we have Victoria Watts, and on your right is Alethea Alexander. Victoria Watts is a dance educator, notator, scholar, and activist whose professional engagements have spanned Europe, North America, and Australia. Along with her degree, she is also certified to advanced level in lab notation and Banesh movement notation. Her doctoral thesis combined her interest in visual culture and theories of embodiment with a comparative analysis of four scores of Balanchine's serenade in an investigation of the ways movement notation systems encode changes in embodied subjectivity. She has held teaching appointments at George Mason University, the Ohio State University, Roehampton University, and the University of South Australia. As part of the Faculty of Education Senior Management Team at the Royal Academy of Dance in London, she served as the program leader for the Master of Teaching, a distance learning program with an emphasis on practice-based research. This is a whole lot of bio. <laughs> yeah, it was your bio. <laughs> um, Alethea, she currently works at the Cornish College of the Arts. And Alethea Alexander is a Seattle-based dance artist and educator. She holds an MFA in dance from the University of Washington, where she currently is serving on faculty as acting assistant professor. Her passion for teaching and building sensation-based dance spaces, oh, dance spaces for diverse bodies and forms has permeated her work with students at UW, Whatcom Community College, emerging professional dancers, and dance church and Pilates practitioners up and down the West Coast. She has performed with the artists of Bellingham Repertory Dance, Chamber Dance Company, Quark, Compet uh, Quark Contemporary Dance Theater, the Stone Dance Collective, and Ballet Bellevue. And Unum Dance Company, Scott Wells, and Joe Crater. Sorry, I kept going. Congratulations. A native to, dance, a native to Washington State, Lethia grew up in the little northwest corner of Bellingham. So welcome back to Thank you. here. My name is Lauren Carroll Bolger. I'm the education associate here, and I also curated the exhibit Spell of the West, so I'm excited to speak a little bit today. So first, I think we are just going to watch a little short video about George Balanchine, who was the choreographer of a Western symphony, which is the piece that is showcased in this exhibit. He is also known as kind of the father of American ballet. Here we go. Thank you. 
So now I'm going to open up the questions for our panelists. And first, I just want to start with, why do we care about Balanchine's ballets? Well, shall I pour in for that one? Yeah. Uh, as Peter Martin says in the, in the video, he's really a colossus of ballet globally, not just in the US. Certainly, he established what is the American-style of ballet, but beyond that, his aesthetic gradually started to influence the choices that dance makers would make across Europe, in Australia, in South Africa, other places where there were big state ballet companies. Uh, his interest in speed, above all else, his interest in excessively thin ballerinas with uh, long legs and short torsos started to really change how ballerinas look worldwide. So that I think is a is a pretty big impact on the dance world and a reason why we're still interested in thinking about the ramifications of his art making. And that's outside of the actual canon of work that's left behind. But I think it's the the shift in aesthetic is the thing that really is enduring beyond just the ballets themselves. What do you think it shifted from in terms of the aesthetic? Uh, well, if you look at how ballerinas looked in the early 20th century, uh, they weren't quite so lean. They could have had longer torsos sometimes. Maybe. Yeah. Possibly. <laughs> um, variety in yes. general of body type. Yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly if you look at English or French ballet companies, you might still see a broader variation in body type, and there's been a little pushback on that as well. Uh, there's a, a difference in the port de bras for Balanchine than there is for uh, schools of ballet in Italy, France, and the UK. Uh, a difference in approach to how to land a jump in order to be quicker. Uh, so many aspects of Balanchine's approach to technique were really about how do you do it faster so that there can be more rhythmic clarity and more speed. So, so it, uh, the pathway of the arms from bra bra to fifth is different because you want to get keep it closer to the body to be faster, if that makes sense. You're not going to land your heels in a jump because that's going to take more time. So even though mostly biomechanically people feel like it would be smart to land your heels when you land a jump, uh, the balancing technique tends not to do that because it takes more time and you can spring up a whole lot quicker, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I sort of laughed when this photo came on as the opening and now closing image to this video that we watched because um, so much of what I think about when I think about Balanchine's legacy is the way that he impacted women's bodies in ballet, as you already said. Um, and the way he sort of shifted the focus of what was happening with ballet choreography and ballet as a, as a place of stardom from being a place where people were recognizing the work, the effort of the ballerinas and the, the dancers as the heart of the effort of the company to ballet being a place where we recognize the choreographer as the star of what's happening in ballet. That was a shift that Balanchine mm -hmm. began. Other things that we talk about as being um, part of the American aesthetic of Balanchine's ballet are taking the hips particularly off-center in shapes um, and flexing and unflexing the feet, things that uh, many theorists talk about as being drawn from American jazz and tap dances, taking um, aesthetics of essentially the African diaspora that were happening in other forums in the United States at the time into the classical ballet repertoire. And I think that leads into a little bit of the question I had that was following also, which was what really was or is the Balanchine technique and style? And then you've kind of hit a little bit on that. <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to add to that as well? Or how is it different from maybe other ballet styles as well? Yeah, we've said about the speed, the shift of line with the, the hips and the flexed feet. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the thing to remember about Balanchine was he made a lot of work, <laughs> a lot of work. So we remember all the good ballets he made, but he was generating new, like multiple new pieces of repertoire every season and not all of them were good. <laughs> and Actually, I think that's something that's really vital to remember, and mm -hmm. I share that often with my students, mm -hmm. in that it's okay to just make stuff. Some of it's going to be wonderful, some of it's not going to be wonderful. And I think that when I think about the comparable English choreographers for ballet, Kenneth Macmillan, Anthony Tudor, although Tudor worked here a lot, uh, Frederick Ashton, they didn't make nearly as much work as Balanchine. They'd leave behind a, a thinner canon. Uh, so there's something useful, I think, and, and it makes me think about American work ethic yeah. and productivity <laughs> right, in that regard. Uh, I think he really adopted uh, so much about American cultural mores upon arriving here. I love the, the quote, uh, the quotation that's the, uni the muse works on union time. <laughs> that actually he's got a ballet to make, the studio's booked, the dancers are coming in, it doesn't really matter whether you're feeling it or not. You've got to make something. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't know a bunch of European choreographers who have that same attitude to their making. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking too a little bit about uh, feeling anything at all. Also, as a, as a point of difference, I think, in Balanchine's work is often, and not always, yeah. because his work was so prolific and yeah. spanned so many years of his life and creation, but often when we think about Balanchine's ballets, they are not rooted in an emotional place, much more in a physical place. So playing with bending line, bending speed, um, showing virtuosity in effort, in extension, these things were central to what he was doing, as opposed to expressing an emotional state or peeling away layers of humanity. That wasn't really his, that wasn't the heart of his work. And then what are the different types of ballets that he created? So he created lots, but are there like kind of themes to certain ones of them or can divide them in different ways? Well, his collaborations with Jerome Robbins uh, sort of cultivated a a theme of both working directly on Broadway, though he did that not as much as he obviously worked in ballet, and then pulling Broadway-style thematics into his classical ballet works. Um, he does have this sort of classical story ballet repertoire as well, Sleeping Beauty, um, The Nutcracker, which we've all probably seen his version of in some respect. Uh, so those romantic ballets adopted under the Balanchine 
umbrella as well. And then these more modern ballets, we saw little clips of what that might look like as well. Yeah, people sometimes refer to those as the, the black and white ballets. Sure. It's a, a set of works where the dancers are costumed in practice wear, essentially black leotards, white tights, and they're very abstract, formal, really, yeah, looking at what the body can do, the dance-music relationship, forms in space, things like Aegon, a uh, really prime example of that, Concerto Barocco, again, that's really prismatic in some ways, in terms of opening up like what the space and the bodies and time are doing together. And then there are these, yeah, <coughs> set of Americana ballets, mm -hmm. yeah, Western Symphony being one of them, Stars and Stripes, uh, yeah, which dovetails a little with those Broadway yeah. theatrical versions, and then, as you said, the big, the big story ballets. But then there's some lush, romantic works in there as well. My favorite, uh, Serenade, which is the first ballet he creates in the US in 1934, but he revisits it time and again through his career, and it shifts a little each time he changes things, depending on who his favorite ballerina <coughs> at the time is, and that's an homage in many ways to the romantic ballet, uh, lush and full of emotion. Um, I can never pronounce this one properly. <coughs> David's Bundler Tensler, something like that. Got it, yep. <laughs> uh, which is a much later work that's also uh, romantic, expressive. So we had that capacity, you just didn't do it very often. Mm -hmm. So it really runs the gamut of <coughs> what you could think about. Yeah. yeah, and I would add to that that in many interviews he states that um, what he hopes that audiences might take away from his ballets was often not an emotional reaction, but rather a reaction to the beauty of the bodies and the music movement relationship that were being seen on stage. Yeah. Yeah, and then following up with that, and you kind of hit on it, how he changes ballets for certain ballerinas, um, what, well, um, who and kind of what were Balanchine's inspiration in muses? So you seem to have many muses. <laughs> this is such a yeah. tricky question to answer in the era of Me Too, yeah. frankly. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, so he be regularly became infatuated with young dancers in the company, would pluck them out and pour time, attention, care into their training, making ballets in them, but uh, very often that would have a romantic, romantic dimension. Uh, yeah, so Susan Farrell's the one that people really focus on a lot as being the, the major muse of the later part of his career. She rejected his romantic advances and there were all sorts of complications around that for her in her career and her husband's career. And for her husband's career. Yeah. Um, yeah, but pretty much everyone who was his favorite ballerina at a time was also his object of romantic affection. And I, yeah, and I think, as, as you state, it's interesting to note and challenging to note um, that though he aged, the ballerinas yes. did not. And so sometimes got younger. Sometimes yeah. got younger, right? And so as he was a 60, 70 year old man running this company, his affection and attention was still being poured into 14, 15, 20 year old dancers. Um, and I think that that is another legacy, unfortunately, that we're still experiencing, specifically with the New York City Ballet, but in other places as well, that comes directly from the way that he interacted with the bodies and intellects and artistic careers of the women, particularly, that he collaborated with. Yeah, he's notorious for saying, like, ballet is woman. Uh, and there's something fantastic about that in some ways, like this highlighting of the female body's expressive potential, but it also served to infantilize and take away agency from those women. And uh, I think we would hope that art making can encompass a broad range of human experience from a whole bunch of different perspectives, and the Balanchine work tends to do that less than we might hope. And, and I think it sounds like we're being negative about, but like, I love his work, 
there's so much to really enjoy and appreciate about the ballets that he's left behind, but I think it's also complex at this particular point in history. He's thinking about the, the American dimension of this, mm -hmm. and uh, we know that Balanchine really wholeheartedly adopted America as his home country, like having uh, left Russia, been itinerant, was a stateless human uh, in Europe for a while. After Diaghilev died, uh, most of the other choreographers from the company found companies to take them across Europe. Balanchine didn't. He was really in trouble. He was broke, struggling to find work, didn't have a passport, was really in trouble at the point that Lincoln Kirstein invited him to come to the US. And Balanchine repaid this with a huge amount of gratitude and really opened himself up to, like, what is it to be an American now? And much of that, I think, is reflecting he, like, he used to wear those bolo ties, uh, his joy in Americana themes that other more sophisticated Americans might have seen as being a little bit kitsch. Okay, loved it, totally loved it. But what he does not really adopt is a more democratic, egalitarian approach to anything. Like the hierarchy of the ballet company, which is a you know, very European tradition, totally in place. Hierarchy, totally set. So I, think that, so I think that's quite interesting. Yeah. So was that true of other ballet companies in the US? I mean, wasn't that? When he started the American School of American Ballet mm -hmm. and then New York City Ballet, it, that was the ballet company in the United States. Um, and that is part of why his legacy, I think, is so rich and so entrenched in every part of the way that we study and young, young people study ballet in the United States. Um, yeah. Because so, so, yes, yes. <laughs> the reason there are regional ballet companies is in many ways because they were planted by Balanchine dancers, yeah. Balanchine students. So the the only model that anybody knew here was the the Balanchine approach. Uh, American Ballet Theatre, obviously, uh, starts later has a a different approach to their repertoire, but it's still, yeah, very European uh, hierarchical approach to running the company. And I would challenge that that hierarchical approach to running the company is not also inherently American. I feel yeah, like yes, probably yes. capitalism sort of proposes that yes. and has held up that same structure. Yeah. Yeah. As a divergent thought. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. You're totally, from the outside, from I think we like, we like to think that America is a place of meritocracy and opportunity. And. But yes, I, I hear that. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And then touching on that, I know you mentioned the School of American Ballet, which I was going to kind of ask you a couple questions about. Um, it was said that he said something around the lines of, that first you must have a school, um, basically became the School of American Ballet. But what was this school's relationship with his company and how did his teaching and training impact his choreography? Or the artistic question? I think I might need to hear bits of that question again. It's okay, so basically he said that first yeah. you must have a school. Um, you touched on the name of the school, School of American Ballet. So what was its relationship with the company that he created? And then how did his teaching or training within the school impact his choreography or artistic direction? Do you want to go that? Shall I do that? I'll start. Yeah. You take it up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think that uh, because, as we've said, there was not a lot of ballet training in the United States when Balanchine arrived here in New York City with Lincoln Kirstein, uh, it was in fact imperative, as he says. First, you must have a school because the training wasn't even there to support beginning to create work right away. And this first ballet that you've mentioned, Serenade, um, was actually performed by students in the school to begin with, and then that became the formation of the company and has, again, been redone many times from that place. But um, literally, I mean, it's not a metaphorical statement that 
oh, we believe in education and we have to go back to the roots. Literally, there was no place to draw professional movement from in a ballet vocabulary when he arrived here. Yeah, that's really thorough. <laughs> I think it's a good point. So I wrote down a quotation from Lincoln Kurzgein this morning because it's one that I always have right at the tip of my tongue mm -hmm. and I want to get it right. Uh, but touches on that uh, in terms of how Balanchine saw the potential for dancers mm -hmm. in the US. So in the 19th, about Balanchine's view of young American women in the 1930s, Lincoln Kirsten says, young American women were not sylphides. They were basketball champions and queens of the tennis court, whose proper domain was athletics. They were long-legged, long-necked, slim-hipped, and capable of endless acrobatic virtuosity. The drum majorette, the cheerleader of the high school football team of the 1930s, filled Balanchine's eye. So there were, there were young people who'd been taking ballet classes. Um, certainly after some of the Diaghilev tours of the US, dancers stayed, they set up families, they were teaching, but they weren't teaching the kind of approach to ballet that Balanchine wanted. And what he wanted were dancers who reflected this idealized image of American youth, female American youth. These long-legged, slim-hipped, athletic, varsity girls in, in many ways. So I thought this quotation was really yeah. meaningful to me in terms of understanding how we get to this point in terms of what the dancers look like. Yeah, yeah and I think there's, um, I think I'd read or seen somewhere as well that he was also influenced by the women in Russia at the time because they were so poor and not well fed. Apparently he liked the, he got used to seeing the look of a kind of more famine body. And apparently that also, at least I'd heard that that also influenced a little bit of his. Did you have a question? Uh, my question was the relationship between his work, his acceptance of what he sees as part of American culture. And is, is part of that a rejection of what was going on in Russian ballet? Absolutely. And uh, yet there are some similarities that carried over. I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about that. I, I don't know that we can say that he rejects his Russian heritage or the Russian ballet. I, in all that I've read about him, as much as he feels himself wholly an American once he's been adopted by the US, we also read that he would be filled with joy when chatting with other Rus Russian emigres, going to the Russian tea house. Like there was something that was still incredibly meaningful to him about that, that he didn't reject. It's difficult from this point in history for us to ascribe motivation to a person mm. we haven't met. Uh, I would suggest, though, that it's more that he's interested in distinctively making new work that's his and grounded in this place, and that he believes fully in his own aesthetic choices, than that he's rejecting, I think there's a, there's a negativity to that <laughs> that I think is not accurate for Balanchine and that it's really about a positive, I love this, this is what I want to see, this is how I want them to move, this is what I think is meaningful here, now, in the United States. He's also very, very famous for talking, I should have written down this quotation as well, words to the effect of, you would laugh in mockery at looking at the dancers of a hundred years ago. Like, we would, we would look at Fanny Esler dancing and think it was absurd, and we will feel the same way looking back at my own ballets a hundred years hence. Like, this focus on newness and, and pushing the form 
was really vital to him rather than any kind of retrospective looking at what was done in the past. Mm, what was that? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's ridiculous. We don't need that anymore. Let's make this new thing. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? And it doesn't sound as if, it's not as if he defected from Russia and rejected. Yeah, he wasn't able to go back. But he wasn't able to go back. I, yeah, I, I was going to ask you, the revolution, was he able to go back? The revolution happens. Oh, oh, so, so he had to stay. Yeah, they end up, all of the dancers who were with Diaghilev at the time mm. that that happened ended up stateless. Mm. Yeah, like what we would call asylum seekers mm. in the present day. So there's a nostalgia yeah, yeah. for what was, along with a, a rejection of the Soviet state. Mm. Yeah. What do you think? Do you want to add anything to that? I just blathered on for a bit. No, I thought that was great. I, at the same time, that I, I love that we should not, cannot ascribe motivation uh, to things that have happened in the past. I think that's a dangerous thing, and we do it a lot these days. So thank you for that. Um, but at the same time, especially his earlier ballets in the United States looked so different. And I think for all of the reasons that you have mentioned yeah. um, from what was happening in Russia at the time and before when he was training there, that I think it's easy to, to note the, the difference and to note that shift, that drastic shift that uh, proceeded to permeate the rest of his work as well. And moving on from that part, um, what was Balanchine's relationship with music and composers? And how does this affect his choreography, the dancers dancing it, and the audience watching it? So kind of three perspectives on who it affects. Um, I believe that Balanchine's father was a musician, if not also a composer. And Balanchine himself was a gifted musician. Yes and was training in music yeah. in, in Russia as he was simultaneously training in dance. Um, and he's sort of famous for, for saying in many different ways, in many different points in his life, that the only reason for dance is music. Music and dance exist to um, illuminate and embellish each other. And for him, you could not go about making a ballet without first having a relationship with a composer. Sometimes those things were being collaborated on, being created simultaneously, or with a piece of music that pre-existed. And the quickness of his work often was an attempt to demonstrate physically the quickness of notes in music, um, or the successional movement of joints in Balanchine's choreography is a demonstration of the successional change in scale in the music. They're intimately and intricately and constantly related. So a much more respectful relationship to music than we see from other later 20th century choreographers who start to reject a close relationship between dance and music or feel like they can create the dance and worry about the sound later. It's a very respectful relationship with the music for Balanchine's work. And he's a career-long, almost, collaborative relationship with Stravinsky. Um, though always maintained a kind of a reverence and awe to Stravinsky. Like, I think he definitely felt like the, the, the junior partner, literally the, yeah, like Stravinsky is the god and like I give form physically to these incredible compositions. Yeah. You asked us how that, like, so we talked about the relationship for, for he him, was a maker. Yeah. So then, also looking at as a dancer, what is it like then to dance a ballet or to dance with something that is so intrinsically tied to music? I mean, it can pull you in two different directions. There can be something really deeply satisfying about embodying that sound environment when you can feel as though you're being pulled along, buoyed by, by that close relationship between the rhythm that you're manifesting and what, what you're hearing. It's not very articulate. Um, but it can also be very challenging if that rhythm 
is quicker than you are comfortably moving and then you're constantly like fighting between what your body feels would be a nice easy rhythm of what the music is demanding of you. So it can really pull you between those two poles, I think. Yeah, I, I find myself um, teaching a lot and uttering sentences like, are you listening? Have you, have you developed an active relationship with the sound that's happening in the room with you? Because often that is such a great tool for eliciting um, tactile, tangible, sensation-based and active art making in, in your body. It's, it's, a, it's such an inspiring collaboration, I think. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I, I also think that much in the way that you describe Balanchine feeling subservient or in awe of Stravinsky, I think sometimes collaborating so closely with music, especially if it's just out of reach of the speed of the body, can feel then as though the body is the tool that's attempting to um, follow the, the score, the lead of the music as master. And I think that that is sometimes objectifying both internally and also then when you're watching um, as an audience member. And continuing on from that point of view, what does it feel like as a dancer to perform on a stage? It can be general dance, so we kind of our final question, or if you've performed a Balanchine choreography, what is it like to perform one of his pieces on a stage? What is it like to perform? <laughs> Whoa. I mean... that I really have the metaphors at hand to, it, it's such a it's, a it's a way of being as a human that's unlike any other, isn't it? I mean, it's it's profoundly peculiar and totally normal at the same time, if it's what you do. Uh, there is something always bizarre about self-display uh, and engaging in something that is so intimate and public simultaneously. And it can be thrilling for that. And it can be terrifying for that same reason. And I just, I don't know how to put the words to it. I mean, I think it's- You try. I will try. <laughs> I think it's full of dichotomies as you were just sort of naturally speaking. Um, it's vulnerable and it's powerful. Uh, yeah. Um, it's personal and, yeah. and it's often so impersonal at the same time. Especially depending on whether it's your, yes. your work that you're performing or somebody else's and then that kind of sense of responsibility mm -hmm. shifts. And that, that makes me think again of Balanchine speaking of his work and the ways that his work is being performed now and the ways that his work was being performed even when he was alive, um, in that though he was inspired by individual dancers, the movement came from his body and mm. his understanding of time and music and his explorations. And yes, that is a very different experience as an artist than performing and sharing my values about those same things. Um, I think it's so contextual. I, I was just thinking that I'm in the process of collaborating with a glass artist whose work is uh, on display at Bellevue Arts Museum. And I go on the first free Fridays and I move this piece of glass art. <laughs> and that experience of performing in a museum setting is unlike anything else I have ever done on a stage. The experience of performing in a black box theater where the audience is sort of at the same level as the performers, there's no proscenium arch that separates, is an entirely different experience than performing in a proscenium space where there's that sense of being on a pedestal, being removed. I, it, performing is everything and nothing. <laughs> Maybe some of you have experience yeah. of performing and, and can share a different about it. I, don't, I, don't know. I think the interesting part about performing and especially with the performance arts is how time-based it is. It's done. 
once you've done it, and you've performed it, that's it. It's very space. It's in the space, mm-hmm. and it happens. But it was just, it, they were movements. It's not like a painting that you can finish and hang up for other people to look at. The way that you look at it afterwards would be through a recording. I think that's always a really interesting thing, that it's within the dancer's bodies who's performing it, and it happens, and it's kind of gone, but they're still there. I quite like that, though. I think that... Many dancers are perfectionists and are highly self-critical, never really satisfied with their technique or their performance. So there's uh, something to be grateful for in that you couldn't see yourself dancing and when it's finished, it's gone and that's that's that. So uh, you don't have to pour over like, oh, yes, and like, in that phrase, I totally missed the beat for landing that jump. Like you don't have to be tortured by that living on after you've done the performance. Like maybe no one noticed you landed on the Which I think uh, evokes again why Valentin sort of famously said that he hoped his ballets were not performed after his death, which is so ironic because his ballets are probably the most restaged of any creator. But yeah, for that same reason that that it begins to look silly, you start to see the flaws if you bring it back again and again. Did he perform once he was in the United States and had started the company? No, he didn't perform anymore. Did you have a question as well? I do. Uh, Since he is being performed, uh, are people choreographers today trying to stay true to the Balanchine interpretation or are they taking off and doing something different? The Balanchine Trust are very particular. Very particular about who is allowed to stage the work and how it's done. There's no leeway. So how is it done? By, uh, first of all, probably by former dancers from the company who, who restaged mm-hmm. the work. Is, is notation used? Is film used? All of that? Or? Yes. Yes to all of that. Most, so the Balanchine Trust have authorized stages. So even if you set a work from notation, so the, the British Royal Ballet has a number of his works in their repertoire. They have three choreologists, three notators full-time on staff. So they're all notated. So they would use the score initially to set the work, but they have to have a Balanchine Trust authorized stager come in, do the coaching and check that they're happy with what was done from the score. And the choreologist in the company will be referencing past videos as well as referencing the written notes. And then lots of companies don't have have a choreologist don't have access to the score, and they're just bringing in an authorized stage from the Balanchine Trust, who's usually somebody who danced the work mm-hmm. to set it. And that person is probably using video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So I've got a couple of questions. Uh, one is, with Balanchine's death, was there anyone as a ballet leader that rose? And certainly not to his ranks. Are we? it would be as well known as Balanchine, but even attempted to segue themselves in um, and, and assume some of that leadership in the US. I think you're probably better placed to answer that than I am since I'm more, my, my European, mm. Australian history stuff is stronger than my what happened after Balanchine's mm. death stuff. <laughs> uh, I might take my doctorate away from me. <laughs> to be this um, I think the New York City Ballet, for the most part, still really uh, holds the highest point on the pedestal for for creation and restaging and um, the, the elitism of performance in the United States. And Peter Martins, who was a dancer for Balanchine, took over that the helm of, of that company until recently when he was ousted for um, inappropriate behavior with young girls. 
in terms of new choreographers who are coming up and setting new works on, on different companies, honestly, I think a lot of that is coming out of Europe and sometimes out of Canada, not so much out of the United States. Um, when New York City Ballet does new works, contemporary ballet choreographies are often commissioned from Europe uh, or from European dancers who have moved to the United States and have been dancing here, but who not, were not necessarily trained here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so you might actually have more yeah. information than yeah, I do. Yeah, so it's not, but it's, it's not for want of trying. I think that yes. every, every choreographer who works in the ballet field wants to be a colossus like Balanchine. So it's not that there's a, a lack of will to leadership, mm -hmm. uh, but I think there are some, some historical things as well that prevent somebody of that stature rising. The dance world is more fractured than ever before in terms of the, the range of works that you could see, the, the aesthetic variety, Ballet is not the be-all and end-all now. Uh, so people are shifting across genres more. So people like Crystal Pite, who, uh, based out of Vancouver a lot of the time, a lot of the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, has her own company, Kid Pivot, and also does commissions for ballet companies around the world. So is working in a contemporary, Idiom, as well as within ballet companies. Wayne McGregor company, company Wayne McGregor were in Seattle last night. He's his own company, but is resident choreographer with the Royal Ballet in Britain, has commissioned, uh, has been commissioned to do works here. Uh, William Forsythe. William Forsythe, yeah. He's maybe the, the closest example yeah. of a prolific creator who sort of rose through ballet, but then has fractured yeah. and is now doing his own work. And is American, but his, Yes. Reputation was forged in, in Europe, in Germany. Like he didn't get a gig here. Right. right. The funding structure matters as well. So, Balanchine was able to do much of the things that he did at New York City Ballet because of the patronage of Lincoln Kirsting and some, some other folks, but predominantly Lincoln Kirsting. And it's really tough in the US to get consistent funding for experimental work. And in Europe, that has been easier for a long time. There's state funding where you've got a big theater, a lot of dancers, and you can have a big budget for making work, and if it's not a hit, it's okay. So I think that's one of the other reasons why many of these artists coming up, coming up are yeah, Canadian or working in, in Europe. Yeah, and I think more broadly, even outside of the funding structures that might differ in the United States mm -hmm. versus Europe or Canada, um, there, I mean, ballet and, and art more generally were more primary sources of entertainment when Balanchine was making work than they are now. Mm -hmm. It's easier to sit in your home and watch Netflix or go to the movies or, you know, whatever, podcasts. I mean, we have these millions of ways to engage with entertainment in a way that diffuses the economics of support um, from audience members as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you may be answering my next question. And I had the good fortune in the late 70s and the 80s to see many great ballet companies in the U.S. And what do you think the state of the nation is now in hope for ballet companies? Uh, I repeatedly am hearing from Seattle Ballet uh, Northwest begging me to come to their ballets. And, um, you know, it's just really sad to think that the loss of this art, this talent, that it's diminished. And, I, you know, what do you see is what's happening? Is there hope in the future? <laughs> I don't see ballet disappearing anytime soon. Uh, it's still better supported than any other dance style. Uh, and it's a form that's been wonderfully able to adapt to different cultural and aesthetic trends. Um, 
it is challenged by the fact that high art, live high art, like ballet, concert going, the opera, are all suffering from an, an aging population of audience attenders, right? Like, you don't see very many young people going to those events. So that's fine for now, but that doesn't mean, that means they're not gonna have an enduring audience. Like, who's gonna be going 20 years from now? Is it that people who are young now will become interested? I don't know, so there's a lot of work happening to try and pull in younger audiences, but how do you do that without alienating your current audience in terms of the programming that you offer? I think this is a, another reason why there have been a lot of experiments with inviting in younger choreographers working from outside the ballet idiom to set works on ballet companies, to like, try and appeal that way. But I'm not fearful for the future of ballet, actually, not yet. Yeah, I think that there will remain high-profile donors People will continue to want to be ballet dancers. People will continue to want to see the Nutcracker at Christmas, although heaven knows why. Um, <laughs> you know? Uh, and they may need to slim down a little bit in terms of how they operate. Uh, yeah, I don't know the figures for the US, but in the UK, three ballet companies get three quarters of the funding for dance in the country and then all the hundreds of other small-scale companies are getting 25% of the money, right? Because it's really expensive to stage a ballet. The costumes, the rehearsal time, the orchestra, the number of dancers, and the fact is if you were doing a Broadway show with those production costs, you'd recoup that money because you're doing eight shows a week for years. But the ballet is maybe gonna have 17 performances in the season, but it costs just as much to stage. So if ballet companies want to survive, they may want to think about what that model is. Like, Balanchine's early pieces were in practice clothes, Partly that's an aesthetic choice, partly they never had a lot of money for fancy costumes. So, that, so there are some things that the ballet world can do to run more efficiently should, should it really come to that. But as I say, I'm not, I'm not worried because they still get more money than anybody else who's working in dance. Yeah. yeah, you can rest, it's okay. <laughs> it's gonna be all right. Yeah. Are there any final questions before we're going to watch a segment of a Western Symphony and they will commentate on it? We do have time after that as well for final questions, but before I move to the video, are there any last questions? Okay. We're going to commentate. Yeah. <laughs> like, like a live action sports. From this angle, the dancers look even thinner. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
speed. So this sequence of releves is um, pretty iconic. It's one of those kind of big ballerina moments. I know I watch this, one of the things that I think about is um, the sort of active role being demonstrated by the men. They're cowboys, they're out on the range, they're, they're working, and the women are all less dancers. <laughs> uh, which I think is, is a consistent problem in ballet, not just specific to Balanchine, but might be exacerbated by his relationship to women as the sort of men act and women appear. Balanchine's not wrong in that we look at that and would not consider that uh, an appropriate level of performance in the 21st century. Like in terms of how high their legs are, how stretched their, their legs are, like, and all of the... How far onto the box of their point shoe they are, all these yeah. really minute things that have yeah, changed yeah. a lot. That our, that our dancers are way more athletic and virtuosic now and can do things that these dancers wouldn't have been able to dream of, which is what Balanchine was getting at in terms of saying, like, well, like we'd laugh at what we looked at in the past. Like, again, watching Company Wayne McGregor last night, the, the shifted hips and the <laughs> broken line of leg that Balanchine was introducing is now way off. Every line in the body is broken, twisted, subverted, that then pulls back into a perfect vertical. Like the, the dancer's body is able to move in ways that are superhuman, alien, fascinating. Um, and I think we're gonna stay curious as audiences to see that. I like to think about how changes in economy and production have contributed to that too. There's, uh, you know, Balanchine is coming into a very industrialized United States, but it's, um, it's an assembly line. We don't have any experience the tech boom, right? So it's linear with, with little quirks, with little nuggets that are coming in and out, little facets that are moving. But now the way that we think, the way that we produce is this diffuse um, and incredibly intricate pattern of production and thought. And I think that you see that in the way that bodies are moving now. Um, yeah. 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 Thank you. <laughs> Are there any final questions from anybody? Just curious. Is that push for perfection and alignment and so on making it riskier for the performances? Performers? Well, we also know more. Yeah. We know more about how to train safely. Right. We. Uh, the dance world has been slow to adopt the insights from sports science and sports medicine, but we're getting there. So I think that, yeah, people in general are better nourished, have better access to good healthcare. We know more about rehabilitation. We know more about how to train the body effectively, when to load, when to put in structured rest, all of that stuff. So I'm, I'm not sure that rates of injury are increasing, although the types of injury might be changing. Yeah, absolutely. One of the ways that Balanchine's dancers famously stayed thin was not eating at all and doing a lot of coke. Yeah. So we, we have uh, improved our ability to stay thin and athletic in this yeah. way and maybe even in a more exaggerated way with better nourishment. Yeah. That's one yeah. example of yeah. the many ways that we have um, exceeded in our just sort of general human potential to uh, move physically. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, even in college, so at Cornish, we have a a physical therapist in house. She's there two days a week for students to see when they've got like a slight twinge. So we intervene sooner, and we know more about how to how to recuperate. 
Um, so yeah, I think we're just going to become more virtuosic. The, the more interesting question for me around that is in the pursuit of virtuosity, this kind of priming of a body that can do anything, in that training process, do we lose the focus on expressivity, emotion, artistry? Are, and are those things opposed? Is it possible to train both of those things simultaneously? Do you have to choose one over the other? I don't, I don't know, but I think that uh, it's, a, it's a question that I come back to again and again with my own dancers. And beyond the relationship of the dancer to the dance, then in the relationship of audience to movement, does that distance, does that separation of possibility of mm -hmm. skill, of physicality become so vast that the performer becomes even less human and less accessible. Any other questions? Do you both have any final thoughts, comments for wrap up? critical about ballet and about Balanchine, but I wouldn't want you to think that that's from a place of dismissal. The work is beautiful. Ballet is an incredible, enduring movement art. Um, and I think our criticality is, is born from that love of the form and wanting and wanting for it to flourish in the 21st century. And in order to do that, I think we have to be alert to some of its failings in the, in the past, right? Absolutely, yeah. I think critically engaging with something is a way to respect yeah. that thing. Yeah, I, and I appreciate that statement, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, don't stop going to see ballet just because it's sometimes <laughs> bad about women. But do go see new choreographers, as you have suggested. I think that one of the potential places that ballet gets lost is that the interest stays in the classical Balanchine works or in Sleeping Beauty, the Nutcracker, these places. And I would encourage you to um, be interested in the new kinds of work that you've asked about and that are happening everywhere yeah. at Pacific Northwest Ballet in Seattle and, and all over the world. I just thought of a question. Ticket prices. In other countries, is it as expensive to go to the ballet as it is here? Okay. Well, it can, look, it can be, but uh, I'll, I'll speak about the UK first. Yes. In that, if you receive Arts Council funding, which the Royal Ballet does, uh, part of that deal is we're going to give you all these millions to run your company every year, but you need to have X number of tickets available at but um, below $20 yes. for every performance. Mm -hmm. So yes, you could pay 150 bucks for a, a ticket, but you'll also be able to pay 20 bucks. Like, you, you won't have a great view, but you mm -hmm. can go and, and see it. Um, so that's tied to the getting state funding. I was living in the Netherlands for a little while, and when I was there, you could go and see Netherlands Dance Theatre, which is a contemporary ballet company. Um, and it was 20 euros for a ticket, but it also included a cup of tea or coffee before the show and a glass of wine in the interval. <laughs> <laughs> and that was just like the, the set price. And of course, the theatre is full every night because of that. So I, I think that there's something in the pricing, but when your production costs are so high, so the thing to remember is that even here, there isn't a company out there whose ticket prices reflect the cost of putting on the production. Not even close. Yes. But so that's a tricky model, isn't it? Do exclude a lot yeah, of they audience. Do. We'd love to come. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. And, and gives the sense that it's an elite, elitist yes, art form. Yes. 
but actually everybody can enjoy sure. ballet sure. if it's affordable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. There are a lot of uh, companies, nonprofits, and and the companies themselves, the ballet companies that are trying to work around that a little bit. Um, for example, in Seattle, there's a company that I love that is called Teen Ticks, where they offer five dollar tickets. They have partners in the city, and Pacific Northwest oh, Ballet is one. That's yeah, if you're under 20, well, between 13 and 20, you get $5 tickets to the ballet. And yeah, that is right. one of their attempts to bring in yes. younger audiences. Yes. That's um, PNB has also started doing a beer and ballet event for almost yeah. all years, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, so really yeah. speaking to this yeah. desire yeah. to bring in younger audiences. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. All those yeah. Amazon techies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you both of you for speaking. It was a very interesting conversation. And thank you all for coming. Thank um, you. Otherwise, we'd have just been talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you.